0: begin my talk, because hopefully I want to leave time for um, discussion as well, and begin with what appears to be a contradiction. The Cuban American political act class, which I will be describing in greater detail, with support of Cuban Americans, has been promoting the maintenance of a socially constructed wall across the Florida Straits, so the opposite of cross borders. They have tried in various ways some seemingly unimaginable ways to try to make this 90 miles separating uh, Cuba and the United and Florida uh, as, as if it were a million miles away, somewhere in outer space or whatever. So they have worked very hard in various ways that, to make this wall so, in terms of social relations, economic relations, political relations, even cultural relations, and uh, they have been. Um, very powerful, as I will talk, and have influenced U.S.-Cuba policy. So despite their influence, despite their commitment to um, uh, this wall across the straits, since 1990, we have seen a huge increase in the amount of people-to-people flows across the straits, um, in terms of the homeland visits, and in terms of sending remittances, and I give you the statistics there. Um, for any of those who are interested in how it has really increased. And in some respects, these figures are much more representative of what's happening with immigrants in general, and and Latin American immigrants in particular, in terms of the ties, the transnational ties that they are maintaining with their homelands. But how, how can you explain this kind of new activity that is going on across borders in light of the fact that for 50 years, uh, the, the Cuban American political class has very effectively in promoting this wall across the straits and in many respects even increased uh, in the post-Soviet era in the 1990s through various legislation that they promoted. So, although I'm talking about Cubans and, and Cuban Americans, um, for those of you who, who are here uh, because you're interested in immigration and you don't care very much about Cubans, <laughs> I have a message for you people, too. Um, My Cuban analysis is illustrating a a broader, theoretically grounded um, argument to call for, if you want, revisionist thinking about uh, immigration and a new paradigm that I think helps deepen the understanding of immigrant experiences. And uh, particularly in the United States, the emphasis has been on contrasting the experiences of the first generation versus the second generation, those who are born in the United States. And that's the big paradigm focused. And a lot of it is on the individual level, family. Um, the first to second generation is defined genealogically in terms of where your parents were born and where you were born. So the, the model is really uh, an individualistic one. And it's extremely ahistorical. It suggests that what's most important is where you are on that genealogical divide irrespective of when you have emigrated, from where you emigrated, etc. It's as if life begins once you come to the United States. Your prehistory is not part of the story. It's not part of your story as it's extrapolated by social scientists. So what I am arguing for is that we need to, quote, uh, unpack the immigrant experience and look at the historical background of immigrants before they come to the US. And My argument is that immigrants, including from the same country, if they come with different historical experiences before immigrating, that they're going to take those differences with them across borders and those differences will influence how they adapt to their new country and how they relate from their new land to their homeland. And to focus on just the first, second generation divide leaves this unaccounted for and unexplained. So this is really the kind of theoretical argument that I'm, I'm working on, in, or I, I work on in the book, and I'm describing to you today empirically in the Cuban-American case. This conception, of, it's really calling for a new conception of generations, one that is historically grounded generations rather than genealogical. And it draws very much on the work of Karl Mannheim, who wrote sort of a seminal piece, if you can decode his, what he has to say, on political generations. And He did, was not the least bit concerned with immigration, and his focus was more on Germany. But he really made an argument that different generations have different experiences. And what's critical are the kinds of experiences that you have as you come out of age. And I was just sort of seeing a Time magazine cover when I was coming in this building about the new generation in in the Arab countries, and it sort of made me think, you know, well, we need to study that and see how this experience affects them in the long run, because it is a, you know, undoubtedly a historically uh, social formation type of experience. So, um, my argument is that different waves of immigrants from Cuba have had very different experiences before coming to the US, and that those different experiences that they had in Cuba have had an impact on how they adapted to the United States, and how they relate from from the US to their homeland, and in ways that this Mannheim type of thesis can help explain. So the two groups that I'm focusing on, and I'm using, in my book, I go into more detail, uh, have to limit how much detail I give you or you won't remember anything. And so I don't want you to get lost in the forest. So I'm, I'm contrasting at really the most interesting two cohorts of immigrants from Cuba, the ones that came immediately after the revolution that refer to themselves as exiles. So I put exiles in, in quotes, not because I believe they're exiles, but that's their self-definition and as the one leading sociologists, founders of American sociology, W.I. Thomas said, if you define a situation as real, it's real in its consequence, and that it is real in the consequence in this case, because these people perceive themselves as exiles, and that framework has affected how they've adapted in the United States, how they use used their influence in the United States, and how they relate to Cuba. In contrast, so-called new Cubans who are those who have left since the collapse of the Soviet Union, have had extremely different lived experiences in Cuba before coming. I should go back and say that the exiles, their social formation occurred before the revolution, and they opposed the revolution, and then that mentality has stayed with them to the point that they don't want anything to do with Cuba, including with family of theirs that stayed in Cuba. In contrast, the new Cubans, their forming experience was the crisis that ensued when Soviet aid and trade ended. And if you think we and you have had an economic crisis in the last couple of years, you haven't seen anything, because the Cuban economy contracted about over 30% within a 40-year period. And that just was a shattering experience. Particularly for the younger generation that was just coming of age with no jobs, no future. But it also led a lot of the older generation that had been, quote, children of the revolution, to rethink their views, actually, because, you know, what are you to believe in when you can barely get any food on the, uh, on the table? And in the first years, you know, 93 like, was the, the bottom. I mean, people were really hungry. And so this, we, we, it led to people having a much more pragmatic view of, of life, not ideologically grounded. And it's led to kind of a, a family solidarity with families in Cuba now wanting to have family in the diaspora. Because during the uh, Soviet era, the line in Cuba was that the, the people who left, they were called worms, gusanos, you, you were supposed to think of them as these terrible people. And it's really interesting how the government was able to construct this view of your know, family and friends that, of yours that you should that it was taboo to have relationship with you. If you had them, you kept them extremely covert. to the point you didn't even show uh, that you had you know, uh, contacts with them. let's say if your family sent you clothing, you didn't want to wear it because it could hurt you politically, it could hurt you, hurt you professionally, etc. So with these new Cubans, because it was so hard to su- survive in the new Cuba, home Soviet Cuba, you wanted to have family in the diaspora. And if you didn't already, you wanted to figure out who in your family would be most likely to have uh, the employable abroad to earn money. And the view towards migration totally changed. So while I put in, in point C that the, re- the uh, exiles viewed themselves as political Refugees or exiles. That's how they define what they're coming. Most of them left for economic reasons. Their properties were were taken over by the state, and so they lost their lifestyle, they lost their livelihood, and that led them to leave, but they interpreted politically. Now there were some genuine exiles or refugees that their life was at stake, but they are not the majority of the Cuban Americans who left. But with the new Cubans, they, in the main, define themselves as leaving for economic reasons or economic along with political reasons. And they refer to themselves as going abroad, You know that, which is suggesting they're holding on to their homeland. They don't even define themselves really as economic. They say they're leaving for economic reasons, but not so much as immigrants as they're going abroad. So this is a, a completely different kind of mindset than the mindset of the exiles who came to the United States. They're both first generation immigrants, okay? But with very different lived experiences before they left, and that shaped their mentality that they brought with them when they come to the United States. So this I will show you has affected how they've adapted to the United States and how they relate to Cuba from the US. So how my subtitle of my book is how Cuban Americans have changed the US and their homeland. So let's start on the first part of the equation about what's going on in the United States. And so now I'm gonna to start to deal with this unpacking of Cuban immigrants and focus particularly here really on the on the exiles. Um, the exiles have, as I'm going to be uh, detailing, they've been very successful in the United States, very influential in the United States. It begins, really, in Miami, which is the main place where Cubans have settled, and increasingly, it is the magnet, where Cuban, it it is the second to Nana, as they call it. And so, what they have done is really transform Miami in various ways, to the point that it's now dubbed the northernmost Latin American city. And you can live in Miami uh, without speaking a word, or vacation in Miami, whatever you want, without speaking a word of English. And that is under the influence of the Cuban immigrants. Okay, before then, it was a small city, a, a tourist city, from which, like so-called snowbirds from the north, trying to escape the miserable weather that we have, had come there to vacation. So, you know, Miami has been transformed since the Cubans have come there. And, and what I'm going to show is not only that they have changed the city demographically. Uh, And culturally, but they viewed it with their own particular shade of meaning, which has been very important in establishing the influence that they've had. And then they've leveraged local for uh, national influence, and although Cuban Americans account for less than 1% of the population, They have been uh, really a force uh, among the immigrants to the United States. Mm -hmm. So the great transformation of Miami. So let me just start with, so give you a little sense demographically of what's going on in Miami. They became the largest ethnic group in Miami in 1970, which is already 10 years after humans started coming. They were 4% of the population. By uh, 2000, the last census that's been let out, 30% of the population. And part of that is because more and more Cubans have settled there, uh, either directly or because they settled somewhere in the, in, else in the US and started to gravitate to Miami, but also because the whites left. Uh, and that's part of the Cubans being able to make Miami, you know, create Miami in their own in, image, is that they turned the whites into the foreigners. And they came to feel as if they were, you know, it was a foreign country in which they, they themselves were leaving. So there was enormous white flight from Miami, and then the Cubans sort of became the trendsetters for other Latin American immigrants, which are the main immigrants in the United States today. And what is really amazing about Miami is that 97 percent of the foreign born come from Latin America. There is no other major city in the United States that in which the immigrant population is so concentrated from one region of the world. So you have large Latin American populations, for example, in Los Angeles, but you also have Asians. So you don't have this kind of magnet the way you do in the case of Miami. So Los Angeles is also a border city, so it's not only being a border city, it is really the kind of atmosphere that has been created in in Miami, that it is the destination of choice for Latin Americans, including for their holidays. And you can win the sweepstakes, and a trip to Miami is, you know, the Casamielle. And it is, you know, as I said, the northernmost Latin American city. So that's from a demographic point of view, but now let me talk about some of the ways they've transformed Miami socially and culturally. and one thing that they did that helped the Cubans establish themselves as the main point. And in the subtext of all this is, again, you can't just look at the immigrant groups from an individualistic point of view. This is really what the Cubans are doing with their dem- demography, if you will, to change the city. And so they had basically the first cultural war, uh, or the first English-only movement in the United States occurred in Miami. And it was between the so-called Anglos, the whites, and, and the Cubans. And the exiles, uh, this is already before the new Cubans came, because the new Cubans only come in the post-Soviet era, they won some of the battles, that, and they lost some of the battles. But they ultimately won the war, meaning they transformed it into a, a Hispanic city. So the uh, English-only movements were to you know, keep, insist on English in um, the public sector, in the schools, etc. And the Cubans just kept speaking Spanish. <laughs> so, I mean, they were also learning English, but they definitely were also speaking Spanish. And so ultimately, they, they won the war, if not the, some of the battles. Uh, there were illegal efforts to, to block you know, his, Hispanic language, Spanish in various spheres. Um, that's where they lost the battles, but not the war. But they went on to give it, in view it with their own particular shade of meaning, as I said, which is to say their anti-Castro, pre-revolutionary form view of the world. So they did this through um, celebrations, of various kinds of, of ways. So what is quite remarkable is that Cuban Independence Day before the revolution was May 20th. And May 20th was obliterated as a holiday with the revolution. And instead, is the 26th of July is the symbolic celebration of you know, the true independence of Cuba from, from uh, pseudo you know, Yankee imperialism to true independence, anyway, whatever. So it's, it's really interesting. It is not a holiday that has meaning to the new humans, because they grew up without it. And here you have these eggs. Isles every May 20th having festivities to celebrate it. And it often is a day that presidents of the United States or politicians head to Miami to give special speeches because they're being invited, they're trying to you know defer to the Cubans, etc. So May 20th remains meaningful in, in part because they imbue it, you know, in these holidays, in these activities. Um, they have established, um, they, they really set themselves up as gatekeepers. And I'm now I'm talking about the exiles in, the, in, in particular. And how have they established themselves as gatekeepers in the socio-cultural domain? Well, for example, the Latin Grammys. You know, Cubans are notorious for their uh, music. And uh, the Latin Grammys are for Latin Americans. Well, the exiles don't want Cubans to be coming to be honored as winners of any of the Latin Grammy awards. So um, they initially try, you know, threatened very seriously with, with violence to keep them, Cubans, from coming in. And once the threats were so great that the Latin Grammys were switched to Los Angeles, Then they were able to influence President George W. Bush to deny them visas to come in. So they kept the problem from emerging. But these are all ways in which they're trying to shape the space of Miami. And also, there have been other things. There's a very famous 8th Street, which is the symbolic center of Cuban Miami. And they have big festivals that Latin Americans, you know, perform at it, etc. So they've been very inclusive in terms of Latin America, who they'll include, but they will exclude not only Cubans, Cuban American no, Cuban Americans if they are hardliners, are welcome. But if people Latin American musicians had gone to Cuba, you could be blocked from performing at the Caillage Festival. So they've really tried to shape the cultural domain of, of Miami. And they have their memorials and memorials to um, things that are important in their anti-Castro struggles, such as the Bay of Pigs. Um, there's a memorial to the Bay of Pigs. It's a holiday. and It's a, you know, a celebration, a memorial, not a celebration of the loss, but it's a symbolic time in which they come together to re- reassert their anti-Castro view of the world. They've also uh, create, uh, built a shrine in, uh, to the patron saint of Cuba in Miami. That's positioned, I'm told, to that it faces Havana. Or, and the roof of this shrine has six sides to it. Why six? Well, before the revolution, before the political uh, Castro restructured the political uh, system uh, geographically in Cuba, there were six provinces. Under Castro there became 14. So this is a way to kind of institutionalize the pre-revolutionary view of what Cuba was. And also if you look at the murals in there, they're all murals, you know, that have make no recognition of the Cuban Revolution. So here in the religious domain, too, and the patron saint of Cuba, which her day is in, in September, every September there are whole sets of activities that go on. And not only are they recognizing that, but they infuse their anti-Castro view of the world into it. So they'll be they honor the Day of Pigs veterans and other kinds of symbols of the anti-Castro struggle of theirs. They also are the people who join social groups. Uh, they have joined. Group, they have re-established groups from Cuba. They have joined American groups that they have turned into Cuban-American groups. And all of them, it's, it's the exile generation that are, are the new joiners. So that gives them, you know, basis of social capital development, etc. but all within their cohort. So economically as well, the Cuban Americans have transformed Miami, and they've done it in several ways and in several stages. So the first thing that's most known to people through the literature on uh, immigration is the enclave economy, an economy by Cubans Cuban Americans—they call themselves Cubans in Miami. So I'm sorry, I'm only talking about America now. Uh, the end. I go to Cuba, but the Cuban Americans established businesses that catered to the Cuban American community, and it became very vibrant. They were a large in number, and they patronized them each other, you know, including professionally—lawyers, doctors, what have you. So this became the first transformation by the Cuban Americans of Miami economically. But then they became very important in terms of transnational economic builders. And here, what they did is they, they moved across borders every place but to Cuba. They refused to have any economic relations with Cuba. They are the big supporters of an embargo, economic embargo of Cuba. So they developed all these hemispheric um, businesses in trade, in banking, in finance, etc. And made you know Miami into a you know a global city with a hemispheric focus, and they you know they benefit from their social capital, their human capital, their language, you know their language, the fact that they knew Spanish, etc. So they really were central to this transformation, and also on an individual level, they many of them have been successful. Not all of them. Well, the focus is always actually on the successful ones. There there are. Poor Cuban Americans and poor exiles as well. But they have, on balance, been very successful, and their children, US born children, even more so. So I've just plucked out a few statistics. I have the um, details, uh, the bases for these in my book, but uh, I think I'm just trying to give you a picture. So about 36% of uh, exile generation are in high status jobs, professional, managerial. And 21% uh, are in the top tercell of US income earners nationally. So they've done well, and as I say, the kids have done even better. Contrast that with the new Cubans, and uh, only 18% are in high status jobs, and 7% are in the top tercell of income earners. So part of this reflects the different backgrounds that these cohorts have had already in Cuba because the exile cohort includes a lot of the pre-revolutionary upper classes, the people who really left because their lifestyle and livelihood were wiped out by the revolution. So they came with human capital, they came with social capital, they networked immediately here to help each other, uh, and they enclave, reinforced, and expanded that. And some of them came with financial capital if they could get it out. So that has helped them do well uh, in the United States. The new Cubans are a heterogeneous group. And partly it varies by year if you look at the data. But uh, even, let's say, the professionals who have come out are very different than uh, the professionals from the exile cohort from the pre-revolutionary period. In pre-revolutionary Cuba, professionals were independent. They, you know, had property, um, lived a rich lifestyle, and their kids to very exclusive cl- uh, schools, joined very exclusive clubs. This doesn't exist in Cuba anymore. So even though you're a professional in Cuba, it's a very different type of professional, as a state employee. Uh, In in fact, I will go on to argue that some of these professionals now are part of the new poor in Cuba because the value of your earnings has just plummeted in the post-Soviet period. So you know, I think this is why you have to go beyond the actual statistics to get a sense of what's going on. So they really do represent very different cohorts economically in terms of their class background as well as other kinds of lived experiences. So now let me describe the exiles of politics, which is, is really a fascinating story for the immigrants and the new immigrants uh, in America. In Miami, the Cuban-Americans have become the political class. They've been increasing since the early 1980s. You know, Every year, more of them are getting elected to office in appointed positions, and they've been getting positions at the local level, the state level, and at the national level, the national level, began in 1989. So they have about four, uh, three Congress people, three out of five Congress people from Miami. There's another Congress person in New Jersey, which is this historically was the second largest uh, Cuban American settlement. It still may be, but it's just it's withered away as a Cuban settlement. And senators, they've had they have one senator from New Jersey, one. They had one from, um, from Florida, and they just newly elected one who uh, the Republican Party has their eyes on him as a future national leader. We'll see if that happens. But in other words, they've, been, they've really been able to get into office where other Cubans are, Cuban Americans are who can elect them. And also in positions that give them national exposure and national uh, influence. But back in Miami, they really created a Cuban American political machine of of sorts, meaning that they control, or dominate. You know, it's not exclusively, but they dominate. You know, the political appointments, and they've used their political influence to get access to jobs in the public sector, to get access to loans, government loans such as from the Small Business Association. And it's the exiles I'm talking about and uh, and contracts. So actually Miami has a pretty weak uh, public sector compared to some other cities in America. But the Cuban-Americans have been able to use their political contacts to get contracts. So it becomes very important to have these political ties. So, There's kind of an intermeshing of political and social capital. They each feed into each other to great economic advantage as well. And the Cuban Americans also have formed their own political action committee, which is a lobbying group. And they model themselves after the Jewish lobbying group in the United States. And they are the second most important, the Cuban Americans are the second most important uh, ethnic lobbyists in America. And this, they give these uh, so-called PACs, they give money to political candidates. And in return for <coughs> money, they t- typically get votes. So uh, this is a way that's within the uh, American political system. And the Cuban-American PAC has been very effective in a, you know, it's not like there are, many, there, there are other lobbyists that are much more influential, You know, military, agricultural, farmers in the United States, et cetera. But they've been very effective in targeting their money, and the data does show they do get votes for the legislation they want in return. Not necessarily 100%, but it certainly helps, particularly among Congress people who otherwise couldn't care less about U.S.-Cuba policy. So the lobby began in the 1980s and uh, has helped candidates get elected to office and has helped get legislation passed. And. They have been so successful that they have actually put in place—they have influenced, I should say—a uh, Cuban foreign policy cycle that is tied to the electoral presidential electoral cycle. Meaning every four years, and this cycle, Cuban American foreign policy cycle has uh, existed between 1992, this post Cold War, when there's you know Cuba has disappeared as a national security threat. Right? The Cold War is over. Cuba's military has collapsed. You know, it is really hard to imagine any way in which Cuba could be a security threat to the United States. Anyway, starting in 1992, you, through 2004, every presidential election except one, you had new anti-Castro legislation being introduced to tighten the embargo in new ways that you never thought there were any more ways to tighten it. And the interesting thing is that the presidents and presidential candidates have supported that legislation, but they have opposed that legislation when not running for for political office, for presidential office. So you, this is true of the first George Bush, who before 1992 had opposed legislation to uh, tighten the embargo, but in 1992 supports legislation before he runs for re-election, 1992 is the year he ran for re-election, um, he backs this new embargo legislation, and he signs it in Miami in the eve of the election. He loses the election, so he wins Florida, however. And this helped him in Florida, which is what it's all about. And then Clinton did the same thing. Clinton came out for tightening the embargo when he ran for in 1992. In between 1992 and 96, he is averse to embargo tightening and he loosens the embargo in certain ways where there's executive prerogative. Come 1994, he supports draconian tightening of the embargo. After the election, he wins the election. He wins Florida and he wins the election. Afterwards, he doesn't implement the legislation that he backed in 1996 to get reelected. And the story goes on. The only one exception is 2000, which was the year when Elian Gonzalez, I don't know if he means anything to you, but it's free hearted. If you lived in America, not to know six-year-old Elian Gonzalez, who his mother came on a boat from Cuba with him. She died at sea. Uh, Some fisherman spots him, brings him in. He's unconscious. And then the issue is what happens to Elian? Well, his father, his parents were divorced. His father is in Cuba. Does his father have paternity rights to his own child? Well, the Cuban-American exile community said no. He said he needs to stay in America. This is where his life is going to be better. And it was a huge battle for half a year, uh, total soap opera on television. And that became so important that actually some weakening of the embargo occurred in the midst, but it was so unimportant compared to Elian that uh, the Cuban Americans you know, didn't focus very much on the other issue, and in 2000 was the one time that there was a business opening of the embargo. I mean, against the embargo, and the farmers, who are not, you know, most of them are Republican, but they also are business people, and they lobbied to get an exemption uh, to have uh, agricultural trade with Cuba. So we now peculiarly have this embargo of Cuba but we have this exemption for uh, agricultural trade to Cuba. And it's because the agricultural lobby is really important uh, in America. It's very rich and very powerful. And it's basically slipped through because of and yeah, the Cuban-American lobbyists were able to tweak it, the legislation, but the fact is they didn't want it to ever pass at all. So that shows you how influential Cuban-Americans have been But my argument is, it's really the exiles that have that influence, okay? And here, the question then is, are they representing the Cuban American community? And so here, again, I'm just pulling out a few of the cohorts uh, to show you some of the differences in their views. Exiles, the new Cubans, and US born, second generation Cubans. So you know, the immigrant literature that's focusing on the first, second generation, and they always say, oh, okay, Cuba, Miami's going to change because of this new generation, the second generation. Well, there are differences. If you can just look at any of these indicators up here that I have, and there definitely are differences between the second generation and their exiled parents. But the real difference is with these new Cubans. Look at it. On every one of these measures, I believe, on every one of these measures, They are more extreme, if you will, in terms of favoring cross border ties, in terms of their views and in terms of their actual behavior. So here's their behavior Have they ever sent remittances? Okay? About two and a half times more of the new Cubans have ever sent remittances. Have they ever traveled to Cuba? About two, you know, two and a half. It depends a little bit on the year, that's why they're two years here. But in other words, the new Cubans, favor cross-border toss at the state-to-state level and at the people-to-people level in their attitudes and in their practices. And in a sense, I've answered the paradox I began with, which I said, how can if the Cuban-Americans are so strongly in favor of this wall between the states and have actively promoted ways to tighten it, which they did in the 1990s, how do you explain the fact that you have this new flurry of visiting and sending in remittances? The answer is the difference in cohorts. And the public voice and the public influence is the exiled generation, of the new Cubans, who are poor, who are politically weak, they are the ones who differ dramatically in their views, but they don't have voice, so you don't hear it. And the presidential candidates don't particularly listen to it. It has started to change, as I will discuss in a minute. So, now, what counts for such political influence of the exiles if, in fact, they're not representing the Cuban-American community at large? So there's several factors. So one is um, their rates of voting are much higher. So um, that leads them to influence who gets elected, and also leads to non-Cuban American political candidates, including presidents, listening much more to the exiles because they know who's voting. So here I just gave the citizenship rates, the difference of these cohorts, because you have to be a citizen in the United States to be able to vote. And actually, at least among the exiles, the voting rate is extremely high among those who are citizens. So they're also much more active politically. They are the political base of the Republican Party. In Florida, the Republicans were very astute and and cultivated the uh, Cuban-Americans. Now, you could say there is an affinity of views because the Cuban-Americans are conservative. But the first Cuban-Americans who did become active in politically in Florida were Democrats. Why? Because Florida used to be dominated by the Democrats. And people are pragmatic in politics. and. Whatever they might privately feel, if it's going to help you get office, you're going to be, at that point, you were going to be a Democrat. So the real change in the, uh, both the expansion of Cuban-American uh, identity with the Republican Party and a lot of party switching <coughs> occurred in the 1980s under President Reagan, who cultivated the Cuban-Americans and Jeb Bush, who was head of the Republican Party in Miami. And they were smart. And it was part of the Southern strategy of the Republican Party to win it over from the Democrats. And they were very successful in Florida, and particularly among the uh, Cuban Americans. Now, one of the reasons why a a group uh, that, in general, accounts for less than 1% of the population, how could it be that it has such uh, political influence? And even a segment of that group, namely the exiles, is because of a contextual factor that they settled in Miami, in Florida, which is the fourth largest state in terms of electoral college votes. We have this bizarre, indirect way which you get elected um, in the United States, which is why, like in in 2000, uh, Gore could win the electoral, the popular vote, and not win the electoral college vote, where ostensibly didn't win it. Uh But, uh, <laughs> but but the point is that no party, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats, have given up on Florida uh, and given up on Cuban Americans because they need every vote in a swing state, right? It's so valuable a vote in Florida, much more valuable than in many other states. So this has worked, you know, to the tremendous advantage of the Cuban Americans in general, the exiles in particular, and they've capitalized on it. You know, they've understood this, and uh, they are able to get a lot of plot out of that. And so the other reasons that account for why they've been so influential is their lobbying in the PAC activity, which, as I said, has been basically an exile phenomenon, uh, formation. And it's their money that they give to this PAC that leads to their influence. So uh, just very quickly, it does or or did appear as if the hegemony of the, the exiles, hard lines, was breaking down at various levels. You started to have some serious de- uh, Cuban-American Democrats running for office. You had a split off from the main organization of the Cuban-Americans, the Camp, the Cuban-American National Foundation takes up more room. And uh, so the CLC, the Cuban Liberty Council, splits off, takes on the hard line. The foundation in this context uh, reinvents itself and takes on a more cross-border view, catering to the, the new Cubans. They're left without a charismatic leader. Their leader died, Mosconosa, in 1997, and nobody has sort of emerged. So um, it's also contributing to this breakdown in its hegemony. And Obama in 2008 is the first uh, presidential candidate since the Cuban Revolution, okay, half a century, to in any way challenge the hard line. Uh, And now he did not challenge the embargo, it's taboo. But he did come out in favor of so-called personal against the personal embargo that Cuban Americans should have the right to see their family and to send money to their family. So that was the way you know, he wrote off the hardliners. He got the, those the new Cubans who were voting, and it was sufficient in the context of the demographics of that year, with lots of young people and Hispanics voting, that Obama did win Florida, uh, despite coming out against part of the embargo. Uh, this should be 2010. Really, what came out of the 2010 elections is a consolidation of the hard line intergenerationally, which is not what anybody would predict it. And I shouldn't say anybody, the Cuban Americans probably felt that way. You have this new senator, this dynamic senator from Miami, from Florida, and he is second generation. His parents were the exile generation. And you've had some other elections that are really bringing in new, a new generation um, second generation into the political class in Miami, in Florida, in general. So I'm gonna briefly just talk about the impact that the different cohorts have had in Cuba. And um, I can discuss some of this with you afterwards, but my argument is that it's the new Cubans, though they're poor and politically influential, they are the ones who are changing Cuba. At the same time as the exiles have tried for half a century to transform Cuba. And my argument is that the new Cubans are changing Cuba. It is an unintended consequence of their continued family commitments in Cuba. And so they don't have a political agenda. They're pretty apolitical, actually. But they are very committed to their families. They want to see them. They want to celebrate with them. They want to help them. And so through the everyday kinds of contacts that they have, they are transforming Cuba. Their remittances are dollarizing the Cuban economy. They come back with new cultural values to Cuba. Their remittances are contributing to new inequalities in Cuba. So those who don't have a family in the diaspora or don't have new Cubans in the diaspora to help them, they are part of the new poor in Cuba because the value of your peso earnings has caved in the, so, in the Soviet <coughs> period, and, and also people, uh, motivation to work in the state economy has collapsed as the peso has collapsed. Uh, the value of, of average value of uh, state salaries now is in, in dollars is $20. So through no work effort at all, but through your family in Miami, you can be enjoying a much better lifestyle than that. And it's contributed to new kinds of consumerism in Cuba, and you know, Cuban adolescents now want their—they don't just want sneakers; they want their Nikes, they want their iPods. You know, this is what their family in Miami has. Comes to Cuba with it, tells them about it, and so the value system of Cuba is changing. So here is a revolution based on equality, racial equality, based on moral values as opposed to material values, and. This is just collapsing. Uh, there are new inequalities including along racial lines because the blacks sided with the revolution. They benefited or perceived themselves as benefiting from the revolution so they didn't leave. So now it is working against them because they don't have the overseas networks to help them survive in the, in the new Cuba. Prestige has totally changed. You, know, you used to be the worm, the busano if you left. Now you're like a hero, right? Because when you're treated wonderfully when you come home, You know, parties, festivities, and and of course the Cubans who return love that, right? The Cuban-Americans who are returning because it gives them a sense of prestige in the United States. The poor, they're struggling to survive, they come home and they're heroes. So it's undermining the value system of Cuba, and so my argument is that they are really changing Cuba, uh, and it's an unintended consequence of their continued commitments to Cuba. So I'm going to stop at that point, but um, you know I hope I've helped you. If you're interested in Cuba. If you're interested in Cuban Americans or new immigrants, and it just to really understand that, we need to have new frameworks for trying to understand immigrants uh, that takes these historical factors into it.